0: All right, you guys are a little quiet this morning. so Okay, so kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, elementary kids, so preschool through fifth grade, and then also youth group, so middle and high school. Oh, it's Donje Day today. That means I have extra time, so praise the Lord for that. No, just kidding. So, yeah, you guys are headed out, out the side door, and uh, everybody else, we're going to... Um, Actually, we're going to finish up chapter 11 this morning of Mark and uh, roll right on into chapter 12, believe it or don't. So if you don't have a Bible, you should have a Bible. We have Bibles that you can use. And if you just raise your hands, we'd love to put one into your hands that you can use today, you can take it home. If you don't like this one, we'll get you a different one. We just want everybody to have a Bible. So uh, let us know if you need one or you can use a Bible on your phone. Whatever works uh, best for you. Uh, just again, a quick encouragement. Do come back tonight if you're able, 6 o'clock. Uh, we try to do these nights of worship about quarterly, and they're always just a real neat time of refreshing and just an opportunity to come and, and sort of get your heart stilled a little bit more before you head into what I know is, uh, for everybody, just such a busy, uh, a busy time as we go into the fall, but just a neat time tonight to reflect Uh, before we do that. Um, And again, just to get involved in some of those small groups, I appreciate that Pastor Chris brought up the whole idea about being connected. That's the biggest uh, concern, complaint, or whatever that we hear from people is that it's just hard to get connected at a church of any size. So this is a great opportunity to do that. You know, it's challenging on a Sunday morning in the few minutes afterward uh, to really develop those kind of connections. But in these midweek groups, uh, and again, there's something for everybody there. Those men's and women's studies are kind of a prepare the study, you know, before you come and then get ready to talk about it. The, uh, the life group and the regroup are more so just show up and listen and then talk about it. And especially the sermon discussion. Uh, if you're sitting here on a Sunday morning, then you're already prepared. So just show up and have an opportunity to just share the ways that the Lord is, uh, is ministering to you. So anyway. Commercial done. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to really bless uh, us as we continue in this wonderful uh, book this morning. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. And we do thank you, Lord, for all of those opportunities that you provide for us to be connected with one another. Lord, we thank you so much for the body of Christ. And we thank you for the ministry that happens one to another, Lord, each and every time that we gather. And we thank you, Lord, for this place that you've provided and this time that you have prescribed each and every week for us to come together and to worship you uh, as a church family, Lord. And we pray that that, um, that worship would simply continue now as we turn from a time of, of singing and of praise, Lord, as we turn now to uh, our attention to your word, Lord. We pray that it would continue to be an act of worship and devotion to you, Lord. We pray that uh, our hearts would be open and that your spirit would speak to us, Lord, those things that you would say to your church today, Lord. And we thank you, or we praise you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you remember, we left off last time kind of at verse 27 of chapter 11 in Mark's account of the, the life and ministry of Jesus. And we remember that Jesus had just arrived in Jerusalem for what we've said is his last time right for his final week before the cross and that as he had arrived there he had started out kind of with a bang right with these two signs that both spoke of judgment Judgment against the Jews, judgment against that city of Jerusalem in particular. We saw the turning of the tables right there in the courts of the temple as Jesus just drove out the merchants and drove out the the money changers. Really, it was the, the cleansing of the temple for the second time from that defilement that had come as a result of all these abuses that we've seen by the religious leaders. It was that inward corruption as they had turned what was supposed to have been a place of refuge and a place of sanctuary, not only for the Jews, but for Gentiles alike, and they had turned it into what Jesus said was a den of thieves, or sort of more so a pirate's cave. right? Uh, And then also, kind of as, as an outworking of that inward defilement, remember we watched that kind of a strange episode with the withering of the fig tree by Jesus. That fig tree, a symbol of the nation of Israel and the fact that it was about to be judged because of its outward fruitlessness, right? Judged until that time in the future when the Lord will restore Israel and restore that tree to being a place of blessing and of influence to the nations during the millennium. And so now this morning, as we continue on in the chapter, we're going to pick up and we're going to find out that none of these things are going to sit really well with those religious leaders who were there in Jerusalem. And at this point, Jesus got some explaining to do, right? So Jesus is going to respond to them, though, as we expect he would in grace and in truth. And he's not only going to speak to them, but he's going to take the time really to teach them. And he's going to use a, a parable, a familiar parable that Mark's going to record for us. And we're going to see that it is a powerful and a very pointed parable. You know? And it's going to begin to really penetrate even these hardest of hearts of these religious leaders. So we're going to pick up As Jesus says, remember, we left him. He was returning to Jerusalem. It's Tuesday morning. So this is just after the withering of the fig tree. He's walking back into Jerusalem from Bethany where he had spent the night. And now we pick up in verse 27 of Mark 11. And it says that then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So no sooner had Jesus arrived there at the Temple Mount that he's met by this delegation of these Jewish leaders, right? We have the chief priests. Those were the Sadducees, right? The theological liberals, if you will, of the Jewish faith. And we think of names like Annas and Caiaphas and their family. And they kind of ran the operation there in the temple precincts. And then we have the scribes, right? And this would have included the party of the Pharisees, Right? So that's the conservative branch of the Jews. They were sort of the keepers of orthodoxy. And also in this mix are the elders. Right, So this would have been some of the heads of the 12 tribes which would have been included in this group. Now this smaller group represents no doubt the fuller group called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was this council of 71 men who had been granted religious control and given authority by the Roman government, right? And they now, by the time of Jesus, they sort of functioned as kind of a go-between between the people of Israel and the government of Rome. And up here on the Temple Mount, they were the ones who most certainly were in charge. Right? They were the authorities in this space. And so they said to him in verse 28, says they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Right? Tossing up the tables, driving out the merchants, presenting yourself as the Messiah of the nation, right? They said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, we know that these guys were blind to who Jesus really was. And yet all things being equal, this wasn't a bad question for the religious leaders to be asking as the custodians, right, of the spiritual life and spiritual health of the nation. And yet we just continue each time we see these guys, we continue to be amazed at their ignorance. Because at this point, Jesus has given them three plus full years of, of ministry, and they still have refused to face the facts. And remember, this is not the only time these religious leaders have tangled with Jesus. We remember even just from the earliest chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been confronted time and time again by the religious establishment, and not down here in Jerusalem, but where? Way, way up in the Galilee. Remember, these guys had traveled up there to tangle with him there. And during each and every one of the episodes, some of these very same men, they had witnessed the power. They had seen already the authority of Jesus. Jesus was up there, remember, healing multitudes of people. And then even in chapter 2, you remember the account when that paralyzed man had been lowered down through the roof by his friends, as Jesus was teaching in the house that day. Jesus not only healed the man of his infirmity, but then what did he do? He forgave the man of his sins, right? And so the list goes on and on and on as these guys try to get at Jesus from all these kind of concocted confrontations about the Sabbath and about hand-washing and about fasting, right? About the fact that he's breaking all of these extra regulations that they had concocted and added on to the law. And yet time and time again, we see Jesus authoritatively just really tossing aside their traditions in favor of the word of God and in order to really express the heart of God. And in particular, remember back in chapter two that there was that other incident where they tried to call him out because they caught him eating a meal with tax collectors and with sinners. And you remember the way that Jesus responded in in Mark 2, verse 17. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we look at these men here and we think about all of this that had happened, right? No doubt that that's in their minds. That's here in their history. And all of that was one thing up there in the Galilee. Right? It was enough of a threat up there in the Galilee, but now Jesus had come to their house. Right? Jesus had come to their big house, the temple, and he was a big threat to them. Because make no mistake, these men are absolutely protecting their positions much more so than they're trying to protect the people. None of what they're doing and confronting him from the beginning all the way up till now, none of this has been done with any kind of a genuine concern for God's glory or God's word. It's simply because their positions of power they could see were in great danger of being usurped. Right? These were the religious professionals, right? They had, you know, they had this formal training, they had this human appointment, and they were the ones who were authorized to direct the religious life of the people, Jesus had no formal schooling. He certainly had no credentials from any of Israel's rulers. And of course, authority was the real question here, the bigger question, right? This is absolutely just a question of authority, right? Who's the boss? Who's really in charge here? And I think it's an an important thing for us to think about because we live in a culture that is just chafing against all authority in every form, especially the idea that there is a biblical authority, right? Or there's a, there's a biblical morality. Just that idea is being scoffed at and being undermined because people don't want to be under that kind of authority in areas of their lives that they believe that they should be autonomous. Right, so the big question being asked here by these men really is a good one, right? It's still one, it's really the question that has to be answered by each and every person and that is whether or not Jesus has authority in their lives. And the irony of it is that's really only a question because Jesus allows it to be a question, right? And yet this is the the arrogance of humanity, right? Because earthly powers, they think that they are the judge and jury over Jesus Christ, right? People seem to have this idea that their opinion of Jesus is somehow the authoritative opinion of Jesus. But the reality is that Jesus is the one who's in authority over us. And you remember powerful passages like we looked at in Colossians chapter one, where we see that the rightful place of Jesus is always in the place of preeminence, right? The first position, supreme, preeminent over everyone and everything. I think it's worth a read. It says in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So that is actually the reality here. And all of us here in church on a Sunday morning, right, we would say amen to that, right? We'd say preach it, brother, right? And yet there's kind of a searching question that I think we need to consider in light of that as we consider the kind of authority that Jesus actually has. And that's the question of, you know, if we call Jesus Lord does he really have that kind of authority in our lives personally? Does he have that kind of authority, that supreme kind of preeminent authority over everything that we do? Right now, we want Jesus to be authoritative when he tells us that we're forgiven, don't we? Right, you can say yes to that, we do. We want him to be authoritative when he says that he's coming back for us. We want him to be authoritative when he says that we've been justified and that we're being sanctified and that we've sort of already been glorified. But don't you mess with my morals, Jesus, right? Don't you mess with my mouth. Don't mess with my lifestyle. Don't mess with my attitude. Don't stick your nose into my marriage. Certainly don't tell me how I'm supposed to treat my husband or my wife. Don't tell me what I need to do with my anger or or my emotions. And yet, isn't it all just the same question? It's a question of authority. What authority do we really give him over all of those different areas of our life right now? And, And I think that what Jesus would say to us you know, by his spirit and by his word, as he would say, you know what? You are image bearers. You were created in my image, in my likeness, and you've been created for a wonderful purpose, the Bible says. But you'll only find fulfillment in that as you operate now in the context of my authority over your entire life. So it's really an important question, not just for those who don't know Jesus, but equally important, really, for those of us who do. It's the question, I think, that kind of needs to penetrate our hearts, even as we watch this exchange that he's having here with these religious leaders, which, you know, it's kind of funny. Matthew tells us, that it's not just Jesus and the religious leaders that are having this confrontation. Matthew tells us that Jesus was here not only at the temple, but that he was teaching the people in the courts of the temple when this religious posse rolled up on him. So just imagine the boldness of these guys. They didn't simply just pull Jesus aside privately, but they interrupt him publicly. He is actively teaching, no doubt, a crowd of people. And likely, they probably assumed that this was going to work in their favor because they were going to trap Jesus and expose him and make him look bad. And yet, of course, we're going to see that it only is going to make their own humiliation a very public spectacle. So they demand this answer from him, right, about his authority. But Jesus answered in verse 29 and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, I'll explain my authority if you answer my question. He says, you asked me two questions. I'm just going to ask you one. And then in verse 30, he says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Trust me, when you're on the other side of that, when Jesus says, answer me, you're not in a good place. But as we see him do so often, he answers their question with another question. He says, look, I'm going to ask you one question because if you can answer that one question correctly, you'll be answering the other question about my authority correctly because they're both the very same answer. He says, remember John? He says, was his ministry from God or was it simply a product of his own energy. right? Who authorized him to carry out his ministry? Was he ordained by God? What, you know, what credentials did he have from Israel's leaders? And the answer was obvious to everyone. right? Josephus tells us that all of the people regarded John as a prophet sent from God. John was a man sent from God. Right? His power came we could say it came from divine endowment, not from human endorsement. And in taking them back to John, Jesus wasn't avoiding the issue. He was really hitting at the heart of it. Because we know John had been sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And he had made these very bold declarations about Jesus. We remember in, in the Apostle John's, Gospel. He writes this that the the John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And he who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. That's pretty clear, right? And and if the rulers had received the ministry of John, then they would have received the ministry of Jesus and with open arms. And yet what they did to John, remember the leaders, the religious leaders of Judaism allowed Herod to arrest John and then kill him. And so Jesus, you know, the logical reasoning here is that if they wouldn't accept the authority of John, then they wouldn't accept the authority of Jesus because John and Jesus were both sent by God. So he asks them about John's authority. Where did it come from? And the question was a simple one, right? And they knew the answer. And yet look what it does. It it puts them into this kind of impromptu discussion Amongst the group, it says in verse 31 that they reasoned among themselves, saying, okay, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, it says they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And so they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. So here these guys huddle up but not because they don't know the answer, but they huddle up because they do know the answer and they know that they are trapped. And the best thing they can come up with, right, realizing here they are in public, backed up in the corner, the best answer they can come up with, the chief priests, the religious rulers, refuse to answer, so they just lie. They refuse to face the facts, so they plead ignorance about the facts. Right, purely because they're cowards and they're not operating in conviction, they're certainly not operating in truth, they're just looking, you know, weighing the costs about popularity and about survival, so they lie and they just say, we don't know. So this is an clearly an answer without honesty. And unfortunately, it's the answer of so many today. It's their go to answer when they're presented with the facts about Jesus what do they do? They plead ignorance and they claim to be agnostic, right? Which just means without knowledge. And they say stuff like, well, there's just not enough information to make an accurate decision. And I found this great cartoon. I think it's perfect. It says, I think I might be agnostic, but I'm not sure, right? There's not enough information for me to make that decision. But what this really is, it's not a matter of needing more information, it's a matter of refusing to take a position or to make a decision. The information is all there if anyone is honestly seeking to know the truth. And these men in particular, some of them had seen it with their own eyes. But notice the answer they give, you know, they give it after carefully calculating what? Not what they'd seen, they didn't consider the evidence. What did they consider? They considered the political consequences of either answer. They weren't at all interested in answering honestly or truthfully. All they wanted to do was answer shrewdly. They were way more interested in what the multitude thought than what God thought. So they hadn't answered his one question to them. So we're about to see Jesus is not going to answer his two questions uh, of him. Because he knew that they already knew the answer to both of them. So look at the end of verse 33, it says, and Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if you won't answer me, then I've got no obligation to answer you. And the idea here is why should he tell them what he knew that they already knew, but they were unwilling to actually admit? All right? There's an old saying that says that there are none so blind as those who will not see. What have we seen over and over, right, in the ministry of Jesus, he constantly is kind and compassionately, he just meets the need of this hurting multitude who come and throw themselves at him for his mercy. How many times have we read statements like in Mark 6 that says that wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces Begged him that they, uh, that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Matthew tells us that large crowds came and they brought with them those who were lame and crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet. And what did he do? And he healed them. Every single time we see that Jesus always has grace and mercy and compassion upon the multitudes, But Jesus didn't have a lot of patience with these religious elites. He didn't have a lot of patience with the people who were blindly and willingly rejecting him in spite of all of the evidence, right? Who arrogantly were questioning him and trying to trap him in his own words. He he often didn't confront them directly with any more truth because he knows that they wouldn't receive it because they're simply not open to it. And I think that that's an important sort of a, a, a principle, if you will, for us to understand because in a similar way, it's the same thing in our own Christian experience, that oftentimes we can't learn new truth until we start to walk in the truth that God's already given to us. The Apostle John makes an interesting statement in, in John chapter 7. It says that if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God. So there is a sense in which our obedience brings both confirmation and it unlocks more revelation, right? The more that we do, the more that we understand, and then the more it's revealed to us. But in those times in our life where the Spirit speaks to us, shows us things from the Word, and we dig in our heels... Right, Blindly refusing to see, well, then we can't really expect that more revelation or more direction is going to come to us in another area. So these religious leaders had rejected the truth preached by John so Jesus knew that they wouldn't receive any new truth that he tried to give them. So he can't answer their question directly because they would simply reject it. But what he does do instead we read next as we go right on into what is verse one of chapter 12. Remember, when, when Mark wrote this, he didn't write with divinely inspired chapter breaks. Those were added later to help with clarity, right, as we study the Bible. Unfortunately, this one, I think, makes things just a little more unclear. Because as we go into chapter 12, this is just a continuation of the very same conversation with this very same group of religious leaders still right here in front of this huge audience in the temple courts. And so we see that what Jesus does do, because they had rejected the truth about his ministry, it says in verse 1 that then he began to speak to them in parables. So what we see Jesus do is launch into what Matthew tells us is actually a series of three parables. Mark's going to record one of them for us here, and in these parables, he will effectively, he will answer them directly but indirectly. And he's going to do it through what we know as the parable of the vine dressers, or... What I think, you know, some would call it, and I think it's better, it's the parable of the wicked workers. Remember, a parable is basically just an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning, right? It gives these clear illustrations just from everyday events, but there's, there's spiritual and there's scriptural truth that's just packed in there for anyone who wants to receive it. And if you remember, I'm paraphrasing Matthew 13, Jesus explained what a parable does. And it's that to those whose hearts are hard and they don't want to hear what you're saying, it blinds them to the truth. But to those whose hearts are tender and they want to understand, it actually makes the truth plainer, right? It makes it clearer. So remember, a parable both conceals and it reveals depending upon the condition of our heart. And Jesus knew that there were some of these men in this group whose hearts were maybe a little more open than they would even admit or maybe realize. Understand that among this group on that day from the Sanhedrin, right, this group of men that have come to to confront him, amongst this group there is probably a man named Nicodemus. There is likely a man named Joseph of Arimathea. There is most certainly a man named Saul of Tarsus, right? And there are others amongst this same group of Jewish leaders. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6, it says that the word of God had increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And what does it say at the end? That a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So all of this to say, understand, Jesus doesn't hate these men. He loves them. And he loves them so much that he's not willing to just let them slip away in the silence of their sin. He has something else to say to them. Any of us who who are raising kids or who have raised kids, we know that sometimes those kids aren't quick to embrace the truth that we're laying on them. And yet we don't say, well, that's it, like pack your bags, right? Change your last name, you know, you're out of here, I'm done with you. And we don't do that because we love them. And it's the same way with the Lord. He doesn't ever just drive anyone off, but he works and he works and he works to appeal to our conscience because he wants to bring us under that conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's precisely what he's trying to do here with these men that are confronting him. And we're gonna see he's gonna do it by confronting them with a pretty solemn warning and a very difficult truth that's gonna be hard to receive on a personal level and on a national level. Because in this parable, what we're gonna see, we're gonna hear Jesus fully explain what are really the the implications of the disobedience of the Jewish people all throughout the ages, right? So he's trying to help them understand. He starts to speak to them in parables. This is the parable of the wicked workers. Continuing in verse one, it says, that a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So this was a pretty common scenario. Right, all through ancient Israel, where a land worker or a landowner, pardon me, would prepare a vineyard, he would provide everything that the workers needed, and then he would lease that vineyard to them to work while he went off and traveled to take care of his other affairs. Verse two says, "Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard." from the vine dressers. Okay, so a year has gone by and now the first lease payment is due, right? So the lease payment is due and so the owner could rightly expect a share of the fruit of the fields and so he sends this servant to collect for him. But it says in verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Okay, so this nice sort of familiar scenario has just taken a pretty dark and unfamiliar turn but understand that all of those religious leaders and this huge crowd that was listening, they would know very well, they would be very tuned into what Jesus was saying here because Israel in the Old Testament is very often compared to a vineyard. We see it throughout the Psalms, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Hosea and this parable that Jesus is telling they can already recognize is based very closely on a very well-known passage of scripture from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter five. They would have been very familiar with this, and it parallels precisely this parable that Jesus is telling. You can read Isaiah five on your own, but in it, the Lord basically laments That Israel had been carefully prepared by him to be his faithful vineyard. He reminds the Jews of how good he'd been to them as a nation. And that just as we see in the imagery here, right, God had delivered them out of Egypt. He'd planted them in the promised land, right, this land of milk and honey. That's the vineyard, right? Where it says there that there was a hedge that the owner put around it, that was the law of Moses. Remember, the law of Moses was given as a sort of a protective wall to keep God's people from being absorbed by all of the Gentile nations around it. The the wine press or the wine vat in it, this was the place where they crushed out the grapes. This represents the fact that God had raised the nation of Israel up in order to get fruit from them. They were intended to bear fruit as they drew all the other nations and revealed him to them. The tower represents the fact that God was providing protection to the nation of Israel, right? His constant watchful eye over them. And the vine dressers, of course, represent the Jewish religious leaders, Right Who had been, in, had been entrusted with the, the care of the nation. The servants sent by the landowner, continually abused by the vine dressers, those are the who. It's the prophets. All of the prophets throughout the history of Israel that God sent to His people, and they were abused by the nation, abused stones, oftentimes killed, and not by the pagan, hostile, Gentile nations that were all around them. The prophets were killed by the religious people right there in Israel. You think about Isaiah sawn in two. You think about the, the loneliness and the hopelessness of Jeremiah's ministry. You think about the difficulty of Ezekiel's ministry. All of it came right at the hands of the leadership of Israel. Remember Stephen, when he made his his one sermon in Acts chapter 7, he said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. And of course, incidentally, it was right after he confronted them with that little truth, what they do, they killed him too. So we've got this theme right all through their history of God's gracious and repeated appeal through these prophets to an utterly unrepentant people. And so given that, the next question naturally, as we kind of pick back up with the parable, look in verse 6, is what in the world is the landowner to do now? It says in verse 6 that, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. Right, by all rights, he could have sent armies to destroy these wicked men once and for all, but instead he sends his own son to them. And of course, the author to the Hebrews explains to us in Hebrews chapter 1 the very beginning of the book, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And yet nonetheless, rather than respond to him, look what it says in verse seven and eight, but those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Right? Jesus was rejected by those he came to save. We know he was taken outside of the city gates to be crucified on Calvary. And it's interesting, again, the author to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, that he suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, just like a common criminal. Now, it's interesting because at that time, what the law said is that if there were no heirs to a property, then the property automatically would pass right to those who were in possession of the property. So the wicked workers wanted to keep this tight hold on what they thought was rightly theirs, right? All of their power and all of their position. And in the parable, what do they say? They say, this is the heir, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. But in real life, what these men were going to say just days from now is they say, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they threw him out, they rejected him and they crucified him. And this part of the parable, of course, It's eerily prophetic because here Jesus is telling them now exactly what they're about to do to him just days from this point, though I don't believe that these guys yet had any idea that he was talking about them. Not quite yet. But can you even imagine, just try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to stand there? I can't imagine the emotion, the human emotion that he would feel in his heart as he looked at this men and tells them essentially, he says, God has one beloved son, and instead of keeping him for himself, he sent him. He did it even after all the prophets were killed, after they were all beaten, he said, you know what, let me send my son. And here Jesus looks at their faces, and then he says, surely They will respect him. Surely they will reverence my son. And yet Jesus knew as he said it. That just days from this moment. That they would call for his death. That they would cast him out of the vineyard. And kill him. Therefore it says in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers. And give the vineyard to others. Now, this is super interesting because Mark, in his economy of words, he kind of records that Jesus asked and then answered his own rhetorical question. But what's interesting is that the way that Matthew records it, he gives us a little bit more detail, as Matthew does. The way that Matthew records it, Jesus asks the question, but it's actually the chief priests and the scribes and the elders themselves who answer it themselves. Here's the way Matthew records it. Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Then they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Ouch! Right? These guys were so caught up in the drama of the story, certainly so blinded by their own pride, they had no idea that they had just passed a sentence on themselves, and it was a pretty harsh one, right? Now, I don't know exactly what they meant by saying that the owner should destroy those wicked men miserably, but I know that doesn't sound good any way you slice it, right? Again, the irony, not only was Jesus speaking prophetically, but here even the religious leaders now are prophesying their own fate and the fate of the nation, right? That the vineyard was going to be taken from them and given to others. And so it, it, here's what's interesting. Just days from this point, right? At the Last Supper, Jesus will say to his disciples in the upper room, in John 15:1, Jesus says, I... I'm the true vine. It isn't Israel any longer. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then it's a couple verses later in verse five, he starts to explain that beautiful relationship that we can now each have with the true vine, where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's the way our lives now produce this beautiful fruit for Jesus as we just simply abide in him. And just like we see in this parable, he has done everything that's necessary to make that possible. Here was the owner of the vineyard, he hadn't left anything at all undone for there to be fruit. There was provision, there was protection. And in the same way, Jesus hasn't left anything at all undone. He paid the price, the full price on the cross. So that any one of us can come to him, even in all of our failings and even in all of our imperfection. And he's committed now to continue this good work in us. And he's going to bear fruit in our lives as we simply respond to him and as we just rest in him. And we look at the entire history of Israel and it's the story of missed opportunities because they simply rejected the good work that the Lord wanted to do in them and the things that he wanted to accomplish through them. But now we are intimately connected to the true vine and we can draw that very same life from him because the blessing that was Israel is now ours At least for this age. Until that time when the Lord turns his attention back to his covenant people Israel. And we're going to see that he's going to redeem them and restore them because they rejected him. And it's that awful truth, right? That truth of rejection. Now Jesus is really going to confront them with the reality of it. He's really going to drive that point home. Now he had told them this pointed parable and now look what he does in verse 10. He says, have you not even read this scripture? Now right there, right, do you notice the the great irony? I mean, this is a statement dripping in irony because here he's saying this to these men, many of whom probably had most, if not all, of the Old Testament committed to memory. These were the experts in Israel in the scriptures. So it wasn't that they hadn't read it, they absolutely had read it, they just refused to understand it. He says again, have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is it, it is marvelous in our eyes. So here's Jesus quoting from Psalm 118, right? It's verses 22 and 23. It's just a different portion of the very same messianic psalm that was being sung by the people just two days earlier during his triumphal entry. Remember when they cried out, save now, I pray, O Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was from Psalm 118, right? We said it was one of the most well-known of the Messianic Psalms, and it clearly showed that the Messiah was going to be rejected by Israel. So Jesus says, hey, look, I know you guys are great students of the scriptures, but I think you missed one, right? Because in planning to kill me, and you're going to accomplish it because God's going to allow it, but in planning to kill me, you are merely fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures that said that this would happen to the very Son of God. And what Jesus is doing here in now pointing them to this prophecy after this parable is super interesting. It's interesting to me. I hope it is to you, it should be. Because what in the parable of the vineyard, you leave the Son dead, right? They killed him and they threw him out, but we know that's not the end of the story, is it? So he switches, right? He's piqued their interest with the parable. Now he switches kind of for the one-two punch, Omar, whatever that is, right, the one-two punch. He switches now and he punctuates the parable with this well-known, powerful messianic prophecy where the son of the owner now becomes the stone and where the wicked workers in the vineyard now become the builders who have rejected it. And there is no way at all that they wouldn't have understood exactly what he was doing and exactly what he was saying. He's clearly connecting himself again to this Psalm 118 prophecy, and explaining that he was that son, and the religious leaders were the wicked workers, and that they can reject him all they want, but he is still the chief cornerstone. He is still the fulfillment of that great messianic psalm, right? He is the chief cornerstone. And historians tell us, interestingly, that in addition to just pointing them to the scriptures, he was actually pointing them as well to a well-known incident in the building of their own temple. I'm just going to read it to you. One author records that when the temple was under construction, that stones were quarried miles away and transported to the temple mount, 40 feet wide and 20 feet high, These stones were massive and yet they fit together so perfectly that no mortar was needed for not even a knife blade could fit between them. Tradition had it that one stone arrived at the scene but because no one could figure out where it was supposed to go, the builders rolled it off a cliff into the Kidron Valley. Not until the foundation was complete did the builders discover that they were one stone short and sure enough, The stone they had rejected was none other than the cornerstone. So here Jesus is pulling from that historical incident as well as pointing to Psalm 118 and saying, haven't you read, right? The one who was rejected, the one who was cast away is indeed the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone. And I am standing here right now in front of you. All throughout the scriptures, don't we? We see the Holy Spirit comparing Jesus to a rock or to a stone. Romans says that to the Jews, he's a stumbling stone. In the book of Daniel, we see that to the Gentile nations, he's a smiting stone. Right? To believers, Paul tells us that he's a foundation stone. Right? Jesus himself says that he's the solid rock upon which we should be building our lives. And Matthew tells us at this point that Jesus tells us that whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. So either you're gonna fall broken on him and you're gonna be saved, or he's gonna fall on you and you're gonna be crushed. That's the choice, right? There's two options, and I would highly recommend the first one of those options, right? I would highly recommend building your life upon the solid rock of Jesus as the chief cornerstone, right? It's this beautiful picture that we see then. It runs right straight through the New Testament. In the book of Acts, when Peter's preaching in chapter 4 to these very same men, right, to the Sanhedrin, he's filled with the Spirit. He's speaking of Jesus. And he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but has become the chief cornerstone. And then again, as he writes his first epistle, this is still very, very much on his mind. Years later, he says, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We know that to the Ephesians, Paul says that having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And you'll find it in Corinthians, you'll find it also in Romans, this whole picture that Jesus is here kind of bringing to the conversation, clearly demonstrating that he is the chief cornerstone. And it's this picture that the New Testament authors keep using because it is so rich in application for us, right? The idea of a cornerstone comes from construction, right? It was the most important stone in the building of any building. They would put that cornerstone in its place and then they would measure every other stone in the building off of that stone. So that means that every stone in the building, in effect, has a it has a direct sort of a personal connection to that cornerstone. It has a relationship that it's in with that cornerstone. right? And because it was measured off of that cornerstone, because it's in right relationship to that cornerstone, then you would have a building that was true and it was right and it was stable and it was steady and it was safe to walk into, right? Because if not, If it wasn't in right relationship with and measured from that one cornerstone, you could very easily end up with a building that wasn't square or wasn't parallel, right? And it's not safe. And Jesus obviously is that cornerstone for each and every one of us, right? What a cornerstone is physically to a building, Jesus needs to be spiritually to our lives. We make him that most important stone in our lives, the most important part of our lives. And we measure every part of our lives back to him. This is what the Lord says in Isaiah. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line." So God is speaking to men and women everywhere when he speaks to Israel of Jesus Christ as the precious cornerstone, right? The one who provides that firm foundation for our lives if we would simply just turn to him and trust in him. And for us, right, we set that cornerstone in place when we receive him into our lives and anchor our lives to him. But it doesn't stop there, right? But wait, there's more, right? Because from that point, after we've made him savior, then we need to start to measure every part of our life off of that stone, right? The things that come out of my mouth, how I live my life, the kind of thoughts that I entertain, my actions, my motives, the way that I spend my time, the things that I'm pursuing, where I live, where I work, all of it has to be measured right back to and rightly related with that cornerstone. We can't measure back to the people around us because if they're off by even a little bit, where does that put us? Way off right? When we measure back to the cornerstone, now we have a life that's solid. Now we have a life that can withstand the storms of life. It can withstand anything that gets thrown against it. And we don't need to worry in the midst of a trial if this thing's going to hold up or not. You know, is this thing going to make it through? Is it going to be still standing at the end of the storm? We know it is because it's all tied back and built upon him safe and sound. So it's the cornerstone, that's what ensures the stability of a home, and Jesus is the one that ensures stability in our lives. He's the one that holds us together. He's the one that gives us the, the model or the plumb line for our lives. We never need to worry, we never to be, need to be ashamed if we're living in that kind of a right relationship anchored back to the cornerstone. And that's why the scriptures say, look again at verse 11, where it says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That word marvelous, it's kind of an outdated word for us today, but it just has the idea of wonder, of something that that is amazing, right? This is amazing. It's something that staggers you or that stuns you. And what's amazing in this whole scenario is God's grace, What's amazing is that God has done this. Here we have these people, right? This religious community that is rejecting him and everyone that he has sent through their whole history, beating some, killing others, abusing all of them. And then even in light of that, what does God do? He sends another one and then he sends again. And then he sends again. He sends his word to his people through his prophets, right? These servants who they killed. And then he continues to send and to send and to send. And then finally, there's this one stone that's been there the whole time. He sends his only begotten son, right? There's no greater measure of his love. He sends his own son and they kill him. And yet his death is what brings us life. His death brings life to the entire world. It brings life again to the creation. And the Lord did this. And it's amazing. Right? It's simply amazing. It is amazing that we are sitting here this morning. On a weekend morning, you only get two and you gave up one to be here. Would you ever give up your morning to come here to a place like this and to hang out with a group of people like this? Look around, people that look like this, right? (laughs) Would you ever have done that before you were saved? Of course not. But this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in his eyes. He's taken some of us from drugs, some from alcohol. He's rescued some of us from immorality and all of us from selfishness and depression, hopelessness. He's rescued us from lusting after the things of the world and all the emptiness that comes with it. He's rescued you from whatever it was he rescued you from. And just look at what Jesus has done for you. You are sitting here this morning and it's amazing. Each and every one of us and the very person who did all of that in our lives was rejected by the religious establishment. And yet he always was and he still is and he will always be the very center of everything. Right. The Apostle John, when he was given the revelation, right? remember he was given that vision in the book of Revelation in chapters four and five of the very throne room of heaven. And remember, he talks about the sea of glass and that rainbow that encompasses the throne and the radiance of the father that's there on the throne. He talks about the 24 elders and the four living creatures who are all worshiping there around the throne and the thundering and lightning and voices that were all coming out from the throne. There's those seven lamps that he says were burning before the throne. And then John, in the midst of all of that, John says this, he says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of all the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Right in the middle, as the object, the central focus of all of heaven's worship, right in the middle of everything there, that's the chief cornerstone right there. It's the slain lamb, right? Rejected by those who he came to save. And you talk about some powerful imagery in this powerful uh, parable and the way that Jesus completes it with this powerful prophecy, right? So this parable now would have cut these guys like a two-edged sword because it had a backward and a forward application, right? It looked back, To Israel's history with God but it also looked ahead prophetically to what was about to happen in the next few days and then long beyond that as Jesus would be rejected by his people and delivered up to death by the nation as they rejected the chief cornerstone and look next our very last verse we're going to see that Jesus teaching here was very effective it says that they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Certainly, again, these religious leaders, they knew the significance of this messianic scripture. And we see that they saw that they knew they were the builders who rejected the stone. And this is a significant point because these, the fact that they understood this parable is a brand new development. We've yet to see this in any of the gospel accounts. For the first time, the spirit had opened their eyes and opened their hardened hearts at least enough to help them see the awful truth. So, so their reaction here is one that came from, from conviction. Unfortunately, it was the wrong reaction because instead of repenting of their sin, they retire so they can regroup and just finalize their plan to destroy him. They saw themselves in the parable, they saw themselves in the prophecy, but they give no evidence that they want to repent, no desire to obey what God said. Instead, it just, just you know, firms up their position in their opposition to him. That's pretty heavy duty. And I think as we close this morning, certainly we see primarily this parable is all about Israel. But I think there's a beautiful sense in which this parable is also the story of all of human history collectively and of every human in human history personally. Again, God started the creation by building a garden, placing mankind there. We were meant to flourish there in that garden and to produce fruit for him. But because we ignored his word. We ignored his message, we ignored his messengers, and we continue in many respects to ignore his word, whether it's as a culture or just each one of us as individuals. But when we do that, it always brings the very same thing. It brings rebellion, it brings destruction, and ultimately it brings a loss of what God intended to bless us with and the ways that he intended to bless us in because we've rejected or we've overlooked that foundational stone. And maybe for some of you, you've heard the voice of the Lord speaking to you this morning, maybe there are areas in your life that aren't anchored to the cornerstone. Maybe there are areas of your life where you know that they're out of alignment with that cornerstone, or maybe for some of you, there's no chief cornerstone in your life. Again, everyone in this room, everyone in this world, Jesus says, we're in one of two relationships with him. Right? Either we can come and be broken before him and fall on him in our brokenness and confess that he is the savior and he's the chief cornerstone, or we can resist that call. We can reject Jesus in our lives and just continue to measure our lives off of all of those other stones. But here's the truth is that every single person who lives today, apart from a relationship with Jesus, is paying a tremendous price. They're paying it on a physical level, they're paying it on an emotional level, they're paying it on a spiritual level. You think about following the the mind or, or these different models, all these different cornerstones that are put out there for us All around the world, right? How many people today are suffering because they haven't made Jesus, you know, they're out there bearing the weight of the world, right? Through addiction and discouragement and hopelessness when we're meant to let God take us under his shelter and let the cornerstone carry the load. There's a terrible price that's being paid presently, right? We're meant to walk with God. We're meant to obey and serve him. We're meant to make a difference each and every day for the kingdom. Those are the things that are going to bring meaning and going to bring purpose and bring value and bring excitement to our life, right? They're going to bring the things that all of those other things can't bring. And when we're not living that way, when we're settling for this meager, temporary kind of fulfillment in these things that just can't satisfy we are doing damage we need Jesus Christ we need the very thing that everybody has rejected and yet is at the epicenter of everything because in him there's forgiveness in him there's restoration in him there's a sure foundation there's a place for sinners like you and even for sinners like me that's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus. And it is amazing. And it is marvelous because it's something that Jehovah God has done. Almighty God has done and he's done all of it. And he is offering it freely to us. And if you're here this morning and you you haven't yet accepted what he's offering, if you're not yet a Christian, today is the day to become one. There will be people up here as we close in worship. And if you have questions about this, if you feel the Lord speaking to you about this, you need to come and talk to them and have them answer your questions and lead you in a prayer, if you want, in devoting and dedicating your life to serve Jesus and come into that right relationship with the cornerstone that you were created to be in. Amen? So, Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the conviction that it brings to us, Lord, as difficult sometimes as it is to hear. Lord, we thank you for the way that you love us enough, Lord. You love us so much that you'll confront us with these areas in our lives that need to be better aligned, Lord, or realigned, Lord, or aligned for the very first time with your son, Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Lord, we do pray for anyone here who is struggling with that kind of a decision, Lord. We pray that you would stir their hearts, Lord. Bring them forward, Lord, to talk to someone, Lord. We pray that not another day would go by that they would have to live paying the price for being outside of Jesus. Lord. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts about those areas that you want to bring better into alignment with Jesus lord so that we can better experience the joy and the and the peace that he provides to us and so we thank you lord for this time we ask these things in jesus name amen